Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you've made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous, de- do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me, because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And the New Testament reading comes from Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. And I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The word of the Lord. What a handsome, wonderful reader today. You're not supposed to have favorites in a congregation, but Kathy and I do have some favorites. Will you pray with me, please? We're aware of ourselves. We feel the sting of our own self-watchfulness. We feel the weight of things to come. The dread that comes like a lookout mountain's winter fog. We feel encumbered and tied up by the things that have been done to us, the ways that we've been wronged. What we'd like to see happen today is you making it clear, you making it seem possible, you even making it 
happen. That we could be more aware of you than merely of ourselves. That we could become so conscious of you that we would be reassembled in all the ways that we presently feel fractured and torn apart. But as this psalm would teach us, and as our own experience has as well, we cannot reassemble ourselves. So we come to you. Hear, O Lord, and answer us. For we are poor and needy. Will you bring us joy this morning as we lift our souls up to you? Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Amen. When are you most alive, most filled with joy, with levity, with sense of satisfaction? I could probably predict. You're lying down trying to get to sleep. You feel a strange pain in your back. You start thinking about that pain in your back because you think best about those things when you're exhausted and it's the middle of the night and it's quiet. Maybe it's a heart attack. Maybe my kids are going to be orphaned. I only just got living. And it's already over so soon. Those are one of your most joyful times when you're analyzing, inspecting, and meditating on your maladies of health, aches and pains in your body. It's enlivening, isn't it? But probably most of you don't ever do that. I know. There's a particular kind of joy, an exotic breed of it that comes after you've had a conversation with some other moms, let's say, or some other dads or some other friends, and you all have been talking and you've kind of borne your soul a little bit. And by the time you get to the car, you start to suspect. And by the time you get home, you know for certain. And by supper time, four hours later, you are clear. Because you have had a full day's worth of meditation, joyful meditation, on what you should not have said. Do I need to call her back? Do I need to call her back and and let her know when I said I loved my kids, I didn't mean I hated my kids? We get crazy. You walk away from a conversation and think about what you said and what they might have thought. And everybody's doing that. It's awesome. Brene Brown's come up with that great expression, the shame hangover. You get to be a preacher, you, part of the benefits package you get is a weekly shame hangover, at least weekly. You just get debilitated with the crippling sense of all the ways you might have damaged people of all the ways you were exposed and revealed as awful. Oh man, to think of such things, I can't think of a greater joy. I've only touched on a few. There might be ways that you ponder someone who has, who's injured you. 
and you just find it as easy as drinking a sweet tea on a hot afternoon to ruminate on that, to ponder it, to mull it over, to think of their awfulness. And one thing that all of these have in common is that they are us getting locked in a labyrinth of us. And what we soon find out if we have the pleasure of finding that rather miserable, seeing a party or a gathering on Instagram that you didn't get invited to, And so the natural thing to do would be to think about that a lot. What does it mean about you? What does it say about your worth? What does it clearly indicate about your nothingness? Is that we ponder these things and we get locked in these things and we discover soon enough that we almost never are able to think ourselves out of them. We're almost never able to simply heal ourselves of these maladies because we're stuck in a maze. And every way out on our own accord is a dead end. The psalmist in this passage that we've chosen this week for our weekly meditation where we're looking at it for a couple of days. I know I've said this every week, but, you know, repetition. We're looking at it a couple of days before Sunday, and then hopefully we're all looking at it, mulling it over, meditating on it as easily as we meditate on the snubs in our lives throughout the week. But the passage today is is some nutrition and some guidance for the acquisition of joy. And even by its manner, even by what it is doing, what the psalmist is doing, it shows us that the way we're going to find the thing we most need is not going to come from within us. We're not going to be able fully to comfort ourselves. We're not going to be able to fully show ourselves goodness. We're not going to be able to fully turn to ourselves and give ourselves pity or mercy or strength. We're not going to be able to turn to ourselves and listen to ourselves and then answer ourselves with any kind of lasting, permanent, durable, sturdy joy that can make it through the travails that we're facing all the time. The psalmist shows us that our best joys are going to come when we're not watching ourselves. So he starts out, Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He recognizes that within himself, as a man who's being attacked by ruthless opponents who show no regard for his life, as a man who is joyless and deflated and in despair and in need of forgiveness, who feels the weight of his vulnerability in the world, he says, Lord, I'm a king. He's a king. 
I am poor and needy. I'm resourceless to heal myself. I'm resourceless to generate for myself what I need for myself. So the only thing I know to do is to get out of me and into you. And in, in showing us this, he's showing us like a secret of the universe. Whoa. Because the Bible, which we believe is the, tells us what history means. It tells us the story we're in. It gives us the account of what God's up to in the world. Shows us this progression that happened when people were first made, they were walking around nakedy. And stunningly, they did not know it. They didn't know if they were having a bad hair day, if they had a strange pimple on the end of their nose, if they needed to shave their beard. They did not know, apparently. Because they were conscious in this mirrorless world of God and of each other. But they did not walk alongside themselves watching themselves. And in fact, we're told that when they took on the task of making their own wisdom, of oprifying themselves and living their own truth, which is what we all do. It's not just Oprah's this easy to make fun of because she's better than all of us. Like the patriots and all that. That deal with the devil they've made will one day be voided. I'm no fan of the patriots, my New England loving friends. But when they took on themselves the the prerogative of determining for themselves what their life would be, what their future would be, what was right for them, what was wrong for them. When they threw off God, they put on themselves a burden that they could not have imagined. Well, death, but also this painful preoccupation with themselves. The first thing they noticed was that they were nakedy. Running around. I don't know how a jaybird is naked, but that's how naked they were. And they knew it, and they felt it, and so they had to cover themselves, hide themselves. But they were covered by God. And if you think about your life, there's a great deal of it that if you could only stop for a minute being so preoccupied with you, if you could only for a minute re-narrate what's happening to you, what's happened to you, what's going to happen to you, if only for a minute you could be free from watching you. You discover it sometimes, and it's fantastic. And the psalmist is reminding us again, like pre-fall Adam and Eve, that the way out of the painful self-awareness is to go to God, is to become conscious again of God. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I'm devoted to you. 
He recognizes that there's someone outside of him who can hear him. There's someone outside of him that he expects to listen to him. He doesn't just have to talk to himself. He doesn't just have to listen to himself. There's someone who will speak to him. There's someone who will answer for him. There's someone who will listen. You have friends, I hope, maybe spouses, maybe parents, where you get some approximation of freedom. At the end of the day, you talk. You want to rehash your days. That's all, all the men in here, that's all they ever want to do at the end of the day. They just want to tell you every single detail of what happened already. They want to relive it because it's joyful to them. Okay, no men want to do that, but some people want to do that. And one of the things that happens, I love this expression in Frederick Buechner's novel, Godric, who said that she, at the end of the day, she spoke to her brother and she rehashed all the day's occurrences because it gave her comfort to gather back together all the pieces of herself which had been scattered throughout the day. It gave her comfort. She's talking through her day what happened, what she felt, what, what they said, what, ha- what, what didn't happen, what they were afraid of, what they were excited about. You, you, you gather it all back up. It's gathering yourself back up. And one of the things that prayer is, says King David, is it's getting reassembled with God. Give me, he says, an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's gathering up all the, the wrongs of the day. Gathering up all the places where you feel vulnerable and spent. All the places where you feel scared and undone and unsure. And bringing all of that, as impolite as it may sound, to the one who will reassemble you. Who will listen to you. Who will suck you out of this cavernous dungeon that you've gotten locked in. So you should expect to be heard. If you're looking for joy, expect to be heard by God. And you can expect to be answered. Hear, O Lord, and answer me. At the end, he says, show me a sign of your goodness so that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. He is talking to God as if he thinks that this is going to matter in real time on a Monday morning. It's been said often, I think, or at least occasionally often from time to time, that you can tell a whole lot more about what someone believes about God by listening to them pray or by looking at their prayers than you can by looking at any sort of doctrinal statement that they're willing to sign or any confession they make with their mouth. There are plenty of us in here who believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. There are plenty of us in here who believe that the scriptures are authoritative, infallible, inerrant. There are plenty of us who believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
You believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. But you can tell what you really believe like down deep in your gut in the most primal way by how you talk to God. Or maybe we should back up and say if you talk to God and then how you talk to God. My poor mother and now family get to be the beneficiaries of this reality. Because as a teenager, I was a pretty noble citizen out in the world. I was a saver. I saved up all my sullenness and nastiness and bitterness and sulkiness and anger. I saved it. I didn't want to spend it out in the world. I wanted to spend it at home. So that's where I would spend it. With this lady who couldn't help herself but be on my side forever. And she thinks like I'm the best person that ever got made. You can't convince her otherwise. It's, e- it's easy for me to convince her otherwise, but she won't believe it. I do it in my home too. I save up. I save up all the nastiness. Because I just I want to treat them. You know? At the end of the day, when, when they're tired too and I'm tired, I want to make sure they know that they're loved. And so that's when I wait to, to have a, an outburst of, of, of anger. To be really unreasonable about a thing. To show a kind of impatience that I would never show to any person out in the world at any time. Hey, I love you guys. <laughs> but you know why I do this? I don't do it on purpose, but you know why I can do it? Well, we all do it. Because there's some confidence there. That we're in this thing. For the long haul. I know they can't outrun my love for them. I'm presuming the same here, that I can't outrun theirs. And so we wind up being honest and showing our real selves. And the most healing thing that puts you back together is to be able to come to God and to be able to admit All that you're not. All that you need. All that you demand. Do you notice he's saying all these things? Bring joy to me. Show goodness to me. Kick my enemies in the face. Turn to me and have mercy. Hear me. Answer me. The other night on Broad Street, the most magnificent things happen on Broad Street. The other night on Broad Street, a pickup truck did this criminal, like, unforgivable sin. They turned right the correct way. Just, they just happened to do it in front of another car who was not having it. They pulled out in front of someone, in other, way, in other words. So I guess that's the worst thing that could ever happen, right? You pull out in front of another person. Well, this, this, this pickup trip then proceeded to go, I don't know, five, six miles an hour down the road. The Lincoln Continental behind it who got pulled out in front of. They did the most unsouthern thing I've ever seen a car do. They went, and they laid that horn. And apparently it had like an 18-wheeler horn 
implanted in that Lincoln Continental, that boat taking up a whole lane. But they didn't just do it to say, hey, I just wanted you to know you're an idiot. Here's your fine. No, 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 no. It was a symphonic filling of the ambient air of Broad Street. The night, the twinkling lights of the crystal and the dollar general. And the blaring horn for a long time. I think they must have stuck a broom handle there and just propped it. So they just drive no hands. And that poor truck driver went to bed ringing in his ear. The reminiscence of his vast, unforgivable sin of pulling out in front of someone accidentally. But man, they made their presence known. That horn. Woo! Everybody heard it. And I think, wow. When you listen, eavesdrop, participate with the psalmists when they're praying, like here, Psalm 86, which is one of my favorite ones. You realize what they're doing is they're they're blaring the horn of their heart in God's presence. They're saying, I will not live if you don't notice me. If you don't rescue me from myself, I won't be rescued. If you don't turn to me and have mercy on me, there will be no mercy for me. If you don't strengthen me in my feebleness and frailty, then I am going to wither and fall apart. If you don't come through, then I am going to melt. I can't do this. Hear me, O Lord, and answer me. Turn to me. Show goodness to me. Bring joy to me. And you blare the horn for yourself and you blare the horn for each other. Because you're expecting to be heard and you're expecting to be answered. And these give us a way to do it. We also should expect not only to be heard, not only to be answered, we should expect to have reasons our whole life to need to be heard and answered by God. Helmut Tilika, a German pastor in the mid-20th century, said of Americans whom he loved, they have this very peculiar relationship with suffering. They relegate it to the category of things to be exterminated. And that is the only way they know how to think of it. Suffering is unacceptable and something we must eradicate. The end. But there's a problem. Some suffering's unmendable. Some suffering lingers. Some suffering doesn't go away. Just a minute ago, I was getting coffee and running in there real quick, and Matt asked me if I could please perform an exorcism on the stage because his and John Michael's D-strings both broke in the last two weeks while they were playing. And I said, hey, man, if I could do that, I would do it all over my life right now, all over our appliances and cars. (laughs) I done told you that Brian at the Maxi Muffler told me my last car. He knew exactly what was wrong with it. Yes, I do, man. I know exactly what's wrong with your car. 
your car is possessed. <laughs> well, apparently, if I own a car or an HVAC system or a dishwasher, check, check, check. Possession. <laughs> the Son of Man came that he might destroy the works of the devil, and so we call on him to do that. There's a lot, I know, in our congregation, there's a lot in our individual lives, there's a lot corporately, there's a lot in the world that really isn't going to get fixed, I'm sorry. It might get better. It might be less painful. Some things get healed entirely, and that's magnificent. I pray for those all the time. But there's some things that don't budge. You're playing the long game. Hoping to come to see them as the light and momentary troubles that aren't worth comparing to the joys that await. And so you're going to have a reason all the days of your life to go to God, to expect to be heard, to expect to be answered. Because there's always some reason for those who are paying attention to become aware that I am poor and needy. That I need you to bring joy to me. I need you to bring joy To my friend who's in the hospital. I need you to bring joy to my friend who can't get out of bed. I need you to bring joy. Where it is presently not. When we meet up with these sufferings, one of our natural inclinations is either to pretend they don't exist and then we're living in unreality. And that usually comes back to bite you in some way. Or... We're pretty good at thinking, well, no one's going to pity me. I guess it's up to me. You ever do that? Oh, come on, I got the hardest life there is. I'm not making fun of our sufferings, they're real. But it's very native to us to want to pity ourselves. And it feels natural and it feels right. But I think it's a lot like eating a Krispy Kreme donut. Which also, you can be overcome with the sense of that would heal what's wrong with me right now. A Krispy Kreme donut. And so you push away every other thing that would tell you, well, that's a bad idea. You've done that before. It didn't work. You go ahead and get one, and, and you, take, you, you take a bite and of this sort of confectionary promise, this, this refined sugar flourishing that you're hoping for, and you eat it, and you know instantly, as you were looking for something to have happened, you know instantly that you have erred. You've made a colossal mistake. It didn't work. It wasn't worth it. It tasted good for a minute and then you hated yourself. And you thought, why did I do this? But then you think, maybe I did it wrong and so you try another one. That's how self-pity works too. It seems so right. It seems so tasty. It seems like it's going to be delicious. It's going to help us for a minute to wallow for a minute, to to sort of pity ourselves, to sort of excuse ourselves, to to help us in our status as the ones who have been injured. The universe is against us. Everybody's against us. Maybe it's up to us to comfort us. 
doesn't work. And so you try it again. Maybe I just ate the wrong donut. I need another one. But this psalmist would say, ha, no. What you need to do is go to the one who will give you pity, a healing pity. He knows the right proportion. He knows what you actually need. Will you trust him enough to that? Do you ever go to him and say, Lord, I'm hurting so bad I can't stand it. Would you encourage me? Have you ever asked God to encourage you? Have you ever asked God to encourage your friends? Have you ever asked him to bring you joy? Bring joy, O Lord, for to you I lift up my soul. I'm your servant who trusts in you. I'm looking to you. Your reputation is on the line. All the nations that you have made will come to worship you. This is what we were made for. Give me reason. Help me to see again. All I can see is myself. I'm stuck in myself, trapped in myself, looking at myself. That's all I can see. Get me out. I'm aware of the mirrors. I'm aware of myself, what I said, what I did, what they said, what they did. Let me be aware of you. Oh, man. You're going to have plenty of reasons to expect to be heard and expect to be answered. But self-pity and self-soothing isn't going to be the way to fix you. How is it that you've gotten joy in your life? It's not been when you're watching yourself. It's been those moments you forgot yourself. Those idiot fool moments when you're driving down the road. And a song came on the radio and you started singing because no one would be able to see you in your car because your windows were up. You love watching somebody unawares singing their heads off. You get a sense of like, maybe that's what being a human is. Utterly self-forgetful, utterly unself-watchful. They're not filled with decorum at the moment. They're just singing out. And you think, what if I could live like that? Well, the psalmist would say, you can, but you're not going to find it in a mirror. You're not going to find it looking in your little resourceless self. Let your troubles, let your aches, let your shame, let your anger, let the wounds of others be the thing that brings you to the one who can reassemble you, who can put your life back together, who can take your divided heart that wants all the things at once, who can bring joy to the one who lifts his soul up to him. We expect to be heard. We expect to be answered. You're going to have a lot of reason to keep going to him for both. But I promise you, the pity he gives, the mercy he distributes, the joy that he imparts, way better than anything you can come up with on your own. Amen.